Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I sat down with AJ Croce. As many of you know, some of you may not know, he is an extraordinary musician, songwriter, troubadour, and his new record, Just Like Medicine, drops August 11th, 2017. So for those of you listening to this episode the day it comes out, that means tomorrow you can pick up your copy. You can pre-order it already, but um, if you want to get it right when it's hot off the presses, that would be tomorrow. Um, you can find it at Amazon and iTunes and all the places you get records. It's uh, released on Compass Records. AJ and I chatted about the history of him and his music uh, and his process, his love of words, and the... Um, genetics of songs, where songs came from, down the line. Um, it was a really cool conversation. He's he's a good cat. Um, I very much enjoyed it. Check out links, the stuff we talked about at heyhumanpodcast.com. And if you are a Twitterer and you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that at SusanRuthism, which is S-U-S-A-N-R-U-T-H-I-S-M. That's on Twitter. And then uh, Facebook and Instagram, you can follow me also at Susan Ruthism if you so desire. But for the Hey Human podcast, that's how you find it. So Facebook.com slash Hey Human podcast, Instagram.com slash Hey Human podcast. Please check out uh, Hey Human on iTunes if you get a chance and rate and review it. Super helpful. And there's a donate button at Hey Human podcast. Uh, dot com if you feel like uh, giving a little support to the endeavors here. Um, I'm a one-woman show, so feel free to, you know, toss a dollar or five dollars or whatever. Be awesome. Hope you enjoy AJ and go get his record, Just Like Medicine. Again, uh, he is an extraordinary talent and his music is, is interesting, and it's fun, and it's deep, and it's um, it's certainly worth the journey. All right, everyone. Here we go. Hi, AJ. Hi, how are you? I'm well. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great, thanks. Thank you for being on Hey Human. I appreciate it. Oh, I'm glad to be here. And welcome to my kitchen. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> it's very exciting. Yes. Well, I wanted to start by talking about... You You were so sweet. You brought me your record, 12 Tales, and your wife did the artwork. She did. She um, she and uh, a gentleman named Darren Graylish collaborated. She did all of the, the pen painting. and ink and painting. It's yeah, beautiful. And, and uh, Darren did the rest of it. It was a, it was a real concept of... of uh, I had produced the last three of my... Um, of my albums and I was really ready to learn something from some great folks. And so, uh, I had this idea of doing a 45 essentially with, with six different producers and doing 12 songs. They would pick the songs from my, from either me playing in person for them, Uh like I did with, uh, Alan Toussaint or with, uh, Cowboy Jack Clement. And then, yeah, both. Oh, did Alan did too? Yeah. And, um, and so we um, reached out and just tried to see who was who was available. And then the other facet to it, which was probably the hardest part, um, besides the logistics of working with all of these amazing producers, um, was 
um, a just making sure that we could get into their town because I worked with th- them in their studios. They're all over the place. Yeah, I worked with them in their studios or the studios they like to work in with musicians they like to work with, and except for a few songs where I had a the guitar player who I travel with a lot. Yeah. Michael Bazaar, except for those uh, those tracks, it was all whoever those producers wanted to work with. Yeah, and um, it was it was amazing. So each month, as I was recording that record, I was releasing one song uh, on iTunes uh-huh. and um, giving a taste of it. But I never wanted the uh, the same producer to be the next month because I wanted to give a totally different flavor each. Yeah each time so they're definitely different flavors yeah so it was it was really hard there were a lot of times when I finished I record on Thursday and Friday mix it on Saturday if I if it wasn't finished being mixed by Friday night um send it to mastering on Monday Uh in in LA which is where it was getting mastered wherever I was it was the file was getting sent there and then and then it was on iTunes on Tuesday. And so that happened a lot, maybe four times, you know? And it was really uh, nerve-wracking because I wanted to make sure I didn't miss any month. So it was right down to the wire a couple times. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that because this podcast comes out every Thursday and usually by Wednesday night I'm like, oh my God! Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Let me pour you some coffee Thank you so much. French press, pour vous, monsieur. It's my favorite. Thank you. So when I listened to this record, which I've done many times since Jeff sent it, so right on time and the time is up yes. were my two favorite songs oh. because I'm sort of hippy dippy and, yeah. and I love this the 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 feel Bookend. of yeah and it's and I it's funny because I don't look at the title when I'm listening through the first time Good. and then I went back and I was like well those were my two favorites and I went and looked. I was like, oh, it's so funny that they both involve time because yeah. for me time is so fluid and all that stuff. But there was right. a line I wrote down uh, in the. And the first one, faith can only take you just so far. You got to find out who you are, and that's from right on time. And yeah. I loved that line so much. Oh, that's okay. a tattoo-worthy line. I loved it. <laughs> and I, and yeah. I, I wanted to ask you, like, do you do you truly believe that? Was that something you had to go through? And yes, experience? of course. I actually, um, that song was pretty interesting. And it's funny you mentioned that exact line. I got a message from Paul Williams, the. Mm-hmm. Um, Writer and yeah. actor, head Fantastic. of ASCAP, yeah. and he he wrote to me with that with that exact line. Faith will take you so far. You got to find out who you are, um, and then um, and the and the following uh, response to it. Yeah, um, and what, what happened? That was a really interesting song. It 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 was written in three different cities. The the I had an apartment in Amsterdam while I was touring, which I do pretty regularly um if i can if i'm in europe and i'm touring um i'll rent an apartment if it's if it's not a big group um and we'll just have a home base yeah and so we'll go we'll drive a couple hours at the most maybe a few hours and then drive home afterwards and wake up and make our own coffee and do our Mm -hmm. own thing and then Mm -hmm. you don't we don't need to leave until then anyway so i was i was in amsterdam and across the street from the apartment was um, this big church, and the bell didn't stop ringing on the hour. And and so, like, when we got there, when we landed, and we got into this place, and we walked 
you know, I heard it and I'm like, oh, we're in Europe. It's quaint. The second hour. It's so great to be here. I'm glad to be here by like three in the morning. You're pulling your hair out going, what the? So the next morning, red eyed, I just, I sat in, um, there's a small little sort of, um, uh, garden in the back, um, and wrote all the lyrics to the verses. Mm -hmm. And then I came home to Nashville and I wrote the chorus to the song. And then um, I left Nashville and uh, moved back to California. I was in San Diego and I was, um, and I finished the bridge in San Diego. And so it was a, Song, you know what I love Song of Three that? Cities. Yeah, I love that too because you're in a different time, a different place, and because of what that song is about. And it's and each each one is very much um, sort of in keeping with the place. So the verses really do kind of suit that um, um, that place. And it was just it was kind of um, because of of the way that I wrote them, and then the 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 chorus. Is really about it's really about Nashville, about all these people who come here with the hope of being able to be a musician, with the hope yeah. to be able to be a writer, with the hope to be a performer. Um, um, and and that's what the chorus sings about, you know. And then um, then and then the bridge is this like this kind of like um, Beach Boys inspired kind of harmony thing and so anyway there's do you think that. finding out who you I mean obviously you're the son of a very famous musician uh-huh. and um, and so I think anytime a kid grows up with that even though your father passed away when you were so young mm-hmm. when anytime anybody grows up in um, with that sort of specter mm-hmm. in the room of mm-hmm. of the what the father or the mother does for a living because your mom is also an artist is that sort of make you go oh, shoot like if they were doctors you'd be like i better go to harvard and you know then go get my medical degree because that's the no, thing. who you, know you are what? thing is um, interesting um you know as far as my you know my father was a was a good musician he was a really great writer mm-hmm. you know and i dedicated myself from the time i was a kid to being um a really as great a piano player as I could be. Mm-hmm. You know, I came to guitar later uh, in my 30s, but I was, um, um, to me, I saw what fame did and I saw how it affected people and I saw how, you know, you could go into a store and someone would be a complete jerk to you and then, and then uh, they might, you know, see your name on a check or a credit card or something and then everything changes and you just you're repulsed by this behavior you know it's disgusting you know it's really gross yeah and so fame was never my thing i just wanted to be as good as i could be at what i did i think you can tell that in and so um i i really uh probably uh messed up as far as that goes because there's a for so long it was a it was kind of a high wire act of i don't want to do that because if i do that i might might have too much success, you know, and if I, and I turned down opportunities, especially early in my career that, um, would have m- made me, you know, possibly wealthy, possibly famous, possibly any of these things. Yeah. And I don't regret that because I, I really did what I thought was right. And, um, 
And now, if I want to play one of his songs, or every maybe four times a year, I'll do a two generations of our music and oh. and um, play that that stuff. It's really out of joy and out of love for it, and it's not out of trying to make anything, you know. Well, I think a lot yeah. of times people confuse happiness with fame and money. When in reality, most of the famous people I know and the super wealthy people I know are not very happy. Yeah, I don't. It's, I it's had that a, weird myth we're I, fed. I had a great. Um, meeting, I was um, just told this story recently to a friend of mine who was uh, managed by this this um, sort of well-known uh, manager. He, I think he started here and moved to L.A. and was really very, very successful. And he had some legendary country artists. And um, he, I met with him after my first manager, um, and I was kind of looking to find someone that was going to take the take me to another place and we were gonna it was just you know um who had, had experience and all of that stuff and one of the things he asked me was uh, besides music what are the three things that you want out of life and it really that question as simple as it is and i've said i've told this story many times it really affected um how i pursued music and what i wanted out of it and um, because, it, you know, he what he told me was, you know, I've, I've got, you know, a client who is in his 50s, incredibly successful, has more money than he knows what to do with. And he goes home and it's an empty house mm-hmm. and it's a big empty house. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, so you can put all your time and effort into your career if that's what is important to you. And and you that could be you, or you might have other interests. Yeah. And so it, that really put a perspective um, to all of all of the things that we were talking about. You know, what do you want? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think especially because I'm I'm a musician. You know, I'm a writer and a, and a and a performer and stuff. And so for me, especially lyric, is so important. And, and I really zone in on on that. Um, what struck me the most when I heard Twelve Tales is that it's clear you're a real musician. It's clear that a lot of things move you and that you feel everything. You, because I think a lot of musicians think they have to just do this one thing because they're not playing for what's in their heart. They're playing for what they think people want to hear. Mm-hmm. Right? And so you go through this record, for example, and and... There's a little R&B, there's a little poppy sounds, there's mm-hmm. a little jazz, there's mm-hmm. like kind of little Beatlesque moments, you know, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. And I, I find it so cool that you don't play to a piper, you play to you. When right. so many artists get even vilified if they step outside like from album to album. Well, I found that early on, you know, 25 years ago, um, you know, I... My my first deal with um, with private music and with BMG was my first album was you know put in the jazz category and you know I was really dismayed by it at the time because um, that was just an aspect of what I had been doing but it wasn't my dream to be a jazz piano player jazz singer or anything uh, I love jazz but that's not what I was that's not uh, you know, something I'm, you know, I can play a facet of it well. I can't play all of it well. Um, 
And it's something that takes dedication every day in a, in a way that, that I was more interested in pursuing all of these different kinds of music and learning Latin music and learning, um, you know, different kinds of soul and R&B and early blues and stride and wanted to play, um, you know, rock and roll and wanted to do all these different things. And that jazz label really stuck with me for a while. And so my next album um, after, the, after the first one was um, um, was uh, called That's Me in the Bar, and it's really an album of drinking songs, you know, and it's more, uh, a lot less um, less jazzy, and there's country influences, and there's, and it's still rootsy, definitely a rootsy album, and I'm, um, but it's a totally different, a total departure, you know, uh -huh. and then the next one, same thing, it was like, I'm going to Memphis, and I'm recording this thing that has this, elements of of all of this memphis stuff but there's hints of new orleans and there's you know influence of the stones and influences of the faces and influence of all these things that were like um also in my life you know mm -hmm. and um i felt at that time i really had to explain to to critics to journalists and in general and say you know if you are capable of doing something you should do it because I played with other people as a sideman as mm -hmm. a you know just recording for other folks as a piano player and I wasn't hemmed in as a sideman I mm -hmm. wasn't hemmed in in the studio mm -hmm. I did what what they asked me and and if it was a country thing it was a country thing if it was a southern rock thing that's what it was if it yeah. was a jazz thing that's what it was if it was a blues whatever it was pop thing I was here playing you know, on these Korean or Japanese pop albums where, you know, I had to sit on my left hand because I was using two <laughs> two fingers on Too most of this notes. stuff. Yeah, so, so it was really, um, that was a totally different thing. But, yeah. you know, I was really aware of of that. And I said, you know, I, I think I said it a bunch in, the, in early interviews that actors were praised for the diversity of roles that they could take on and, and, and be convincing in. Whereas, uh, you know, with very few exceptions, musicians were considered uh, unfocused and, Ugh, and, crazy. and I think as long as it's good, it doesn't really matter what it is. I so agree with you. you. Know? Absolutely. So, How's the coffee, by the way? It's good. Oh, Thank it you. is? Yeah. Okay. Good. I wasn't sure if the coconut was going to ruin everything. <laughs> it didn't. Okay. It didn't. I'm glad. No. Yay. So new record. Yes. Just like medicine. Just like medicine, I've just finished it. Um, recorded it with Dan Penn, um, who's a great, uh, legendary writer out of uh, Alabama. He's produced a bunch of stuff, and um, if you're not familiar with his name, um, he uh, he was sort of part of he was part of Muscle Shoals, not sort of was a staff writer down there. Um, he wrote um, James and Bobby Purified. Uh, first hit I'm your puppet he wrote dark end of the street he wrote uh, do right woman for Aretha Whoa. he wrote the letter for the box tops wow. you know the uh, he re wrote sweet inspiration for the sweet inspirations he wrote uh, just a ton of stuff um, that we sing and love and know and and uh, I saw him perform and and went up to him and said hey you want to write a song and uh, this was about a year and a half ago and he said sure and so we wrote a song um 
and and we recorded it at his place uh, in his studio, and it sounded really good. And I was like, "This sounds great." I'm like, um, "I said, can I record another song and just see how it sounds?" And I recorded another one, just solo, piano and vocal. It sounded really, really good. Just the tone tonality of the space, and um, and so I said, "You want to make a record?" And he said, "Sure." And so we started with those two songs. Mm-hmm. And um, and we brought, and it was an amazing band. It was um, David Hood was the bass player from Muscle Shoals. Brian Owings um, from Mississippi, but did a lot of Muscle Shoals stuff on drums. And um, he's now out with uh, Tony Joe White and with uh, Iris DeMint. Mm-hmm. And then um, Colin Linden played um, guitar. And so we were the core group Mm -hmm. me playing piano and um organ and uh wurlitzer um we were the core group and then we had um the muscle shoals horns on about half the record and then we had um, yeah the mccrary sisters on about half the record and um and um Steve Cropper came in and played guitar on a song, and and Vince Gill came in and played guitar on a song, mm-hmm. and it was um, it was a thrill. I mean, it it was it was a really hard project in the sense I should probably say that I had a real concept with this album too, which is that um, I was um, sort of aware that the way most people listen to music is on their phones, on their laptops, with their earbuds, um, mostly kind of kind of crappy uh, um, listening devices. And they're listening to MP3s, you know? And Which for so, people that don't know, that um, it takes away much of the quality. Right. So my, my solution to that was to record a mono record. Mm. which was going to be rounder and it was going to be perfect for a transistor radio. Mm. And so I had this idea that if we record this, it's going to sound good on your iPhone, on your iPod. It's going to sound good out of your computer speakers. Um, cause it, it's just gonna, it's like, it's like, you know, you listen to a mono, uh, recording on, on a, on one little speaker and it's going to sound better than a stereo recording. Um, and so that was a real important factor in doing this. And it wasn't to be um, cool. It wasn't to do something like that. But um, it worked perfect because Dan's setup is 16-track 2-inch. Mm. And that's what we recorded on, 16-track mm-hmm. um, 2-inch. And most of the gear is re- was really old. That know? means tape, not yeah. digital, for yeah. all those of you listening. So we didn't, we didn't record um, digitally um, on on this project, it was it was all um, it was all the tape, which means that you can't go fix something with, with ease. In fact, his machine was was so old, uh, the tape machine, um, that um, even punching in was uh, was hard. So we had to play it through all the way right. Even in the few cases where one of the musicians wanted to fix something, they had to fix the whole pass. Mm-hmm. And um, so that part of it was... I hadn't done that since my first album. And uh, my first two albums were done, you know, 24-track tape, but I hadn't ever been limited like this mm-hmm. before. 
when we started off, I thought, okay, um, we kind of both, Dan and I both approached it like it was a modern recording in that we had a lot of mics and we ran out of tracks immediately. And we're like, well, where do we put the vocals and where, where do we put the horns? And and I came back to him after that. And I we had a, we sat down in the studio and talked. And I said, you know, I want to feel like sixteen tracks, like the old days. I'm mm. like, what do you do with sixteen tracks? You know, because. Um, and he said, I totally understand. He said, when we when I recorded um, the box tops, um, in whatever '67, um, he said we had three tracks, and it was one track, um, one track for vocals. Um, one track for the band and one track for horns and strings. Mm. And so it was um, um, with that idea that we approached the rest of the album. I can't wait to hear it. <laughs> Do you have a favorite track on there? That's the dumbest question ever, but you know, it's kind of fun to ask. <laughs> um, you know, I, there's a bunch of things that are really... Um, that really stick in my head, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty diverse. Like all my records, it goes in a lot of directions, but it's really a soul album. Mm. It's very soulful. Um, and I don't mean that from like, like it's Sam and Dave or, or Otis Redding or something, although there's things that hint to that in some places. It's just that I was in picking the songs. I was thinking of things that were really, um, um, from the heart. Mm. You know, which is mm-hmm. what soul music is. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. How many tracks? Ten. Ten tracks. Yeah. Okay. And it comes out when? Um, well, it's going to kind of be staggered because of the way I tour. So it looks like it'll come out in um, Asia in July when I start touring in Japan. It'll be in Europe in August when I'm touring there. And then it'll be... Um, in the U.S. either in late August or early September when I start touring in the U.S. So exciting. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> so excited. It's going to be great. So do you, is music your sole being as far as your creative outlet? Do you do other stuff too? Yeah, I mean, um, as as far as creativity, that's that pretty much takes up all, all of the, the space that I have, you know. Um, as a writer, I play a lot of different instruments. So for me, um, you know, I, I started different, I started everything else after piano much later in life. But once I started playing guitar and started, you know, playing finger style and playing all these, um, attacking more complicated pieces of music, I, I went, well, why not play banjo? You know, if I'm doing this finger style stuff, why not try mandolin? Why not play mm. bass, mm-hmm. of which I love. And, and, um, and, you know, I just by the sheer number of years and hours that I played the piano, it's unlikely that I'll ever catch up to where I'm at as a piano player on, on guitar or any of these other instruments. But, you know, certainly I can perform live and, it, and, you know, um, and um, perform my own music and um, or perform a set you know a song of, of any sort with 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 confidence you know um, I don't have the the same um, ability to uh, improvise on those instruments as I do on the mm. piano which just comes 
it's like second nature, mm-hmm. which is why I got away from playing. Why I wanted to learn new instruments was because I see all of these options, yeah. and you know, and I just I wanted to like take away some of that, some of those options, and see if I could still write a decent song. Yeah, well, I'm curious since you're starting out your tour in Asia, will you pick up any? foreign instruments just to throw them into your tours that every once in a while just pick something up and just go for it or well you know um first i i don't know the first song um the first song on on this album um was we did it in one take we did it in the first take it was it was a little bit scary for me to do because i had it in my head for a couple years and the first version I, I recorded was just in the kitchen with my iPhone and like a box. And it was just it was just this kind of rhythmic groove that was mostly driven by by the drum sound of the box I was playing. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of this, you know, voodoo, you know, kind of West African, new a little bit of New Orleans inspired, but then the bridge comes and it's this, you know, kind of uh, or B section, and it and it's this kind of pop, rock and roll, um, uh, bridge. And so, in explaining it to the band, I was like, "Here's what I'm looking for. Here's how many times the the verse repeats, and the the A section repeats in the in the first part. And and it's um, it's all mathematical in the sense that it's you know it you have you have." The verse repeats three times in the first section, two times in the second section, one time in the third section, and um, and then and then it ends. And with um, with the B section in bet- between the first and uh, second sections, uh, second and third section. Um, and it was um, they got it right away. And so I had to. I was sitting at the piano, like I'm sitting here at the table. And I had a drum pressed against um, against the front of the of the piano, and and my stomach. And I was playing it, and I was I was recording into like a big uh, Neumann U eighty seven mic, and I was singing. So we all we all started um, playing, and I'm playing hand drum, and I'm singing, and band is playing. And then, um, and then I have to like play the piano part, and I'm so I'm playing that. So there, with that with that song, there was no way to fix. There was no way to fix the drum without messing up the, the vocal. There was no way to fix the vocal without messing up the drum. And then both of those things um, are picking up the piano. That's so stressful. And, and, and so I was. It wasn't so stressful. Up. No, it, because it, I didn't feel the stress of it. It was just like. I I better play this right, you yeah. know. But I mean, yeah. well, I didn't feel like, oh, you know, I'm I'm gonna totally mess this up. I didn't feel that. I just wanted to, um, to play it right, to get you know. It, yeah. And and when we got it, we were like, okay, I think we got it, you know. And uh, I went back with uh, Brian, and Brian and I played uh, one more pass of percussion, mm-hmm. and um, and we added. Uh, background vocals and that was it yeah so we all you know we got it done in relatively few tracks it's really amazing how that how that happened so yeah. cool so as a, a performing artist writer person who clearly knows his way around instruments and all that 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 already i think sets you apart from a lot of 
people just just in this day and age of music um do you have if somebody listening and you you follow your own drum mm-hmm. you know you you're like you know what i do play all this kind of stuff and i yeah. love it and that's who i am and that's okay right you, um for people that are listening that are maybe any good advice to the up-and-coming kids I think challenge yourself to listen to other to as many kinds of music. You know, the the harder the music, um, the more challenging that the music is that you're listening to, um, the better you become. Um, you know, if all you listen to is the Ramones, um, you know, I love the Ramones, but it, they do one thing and they do it well. But they do one thing and. Um, and I feel that way about a lot of bands, you know? They're great at being the Ramones. That's who they are, you know? And there's a lot of bands that are great at being them, this themselves, and that's it. They do one thing. Mm-hmm. And they make a great career out of it. But to me, that's boring. To me, I would, I would, be, I would be crazy if I, had, if I had to play the same kind of music, the same songs, um, because it's not... It's not in me to do that, you know? I want to push myself to try something else. I want to try, you know, Ethiopian grooves. I want to try uh, Nigerian stuff. I want to try Brazilian music. I want to play Argentinian stuff. I want to learn how to play the tangos correctly. I want to play all kinds of music from all over the world. And um, and I want to be able to um, um, play it proficiently, you know? Um, so I started by course listening to the stuff that was on the radio like Beatles and Stones and Yellow and Bowie and St- and the things that were on the radio when I was a kid you know Rod Stewart and, um, Elton John just playing along to those things that were that were really popular in the 70s and I played along with my transistor radio and um, then you know I had lost my sight when I was a kid and I um, um, got turned on to Ray Charles, and that was really life-changing. Stevie Wonder, Ray Charles, you know, turned the kid that can't see onto, onto these guys. And yeah. it, it was really, it totally changed everything. You know, hearing Ray Charles, hearing the blues scale um, as interpreted by Ray Charles instead of Stones or Bowie or the Beatles or, or um, Chuck Berry or Fats Domino. It was like, it was this more sophisticated understanding and from that I went to same thing with Stevie Wonder you know from that I went further back because I wanted to know where where those roots came from and I went back to um, ended up at you know stride piano stuff like James B. Johnson Willie the Lion Smith um, I wanted to play like um, the you know early Ellington stuff Fats Waller was a huge influence mm-hmm. um, but those those things were hard to learn. They were hard to play. The left hand stuff. You're reaching thirteenths. You know, I can't reach a thirteenth naturally. I have to roll the roll the the, the chords. Um, that is to say, um, I don't play it at the same time. But by um, by playing the one and then the one and the thirteen and the five, for any of the musicians out there, um, <laughs> you. Um, you start playing stride. It's a repeat, you know, section. And I learned that kind of by, by oddly enough, by listening to um, great uh, guitar players like um, um, Lonnie Johnson, um, who 
if you try and play that on on guitar, you know, good luck. It's gonna. I'll see you in a year. You know, maybe you have a song. Um, Mississippi John Hurt, and um, there was uh, there was that's really simplified the stride for me. Um, a little brother Montgomery, who was a piano player, and it was um, much more. Um, the, it, he he was a blues player, but he used stride, and it was very simplified. It was um, um, very raw compared to how how slick and fast and 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 proficient, uh, say Fats Waller was, or um, or you know later uh, pianists like Art Tatum or something. And so um, I started. I wanted to play that stuff. And of course, in the process, I learned the blues stuff and I learned the boogie stuff and I learned the strut, the, um, um, some of the jazz and the swing stuff that came later. And, um, and of course, and meanwhile, of course I was listening to rock and roll. I was listening to the clash. I was listening to, to the kinks who were one of my favorites. And I was listening to, you know, all this, you know, sixties rock and roll. I was, you know, really part of this, like, um, you know, 60s mod scene in Southern California in, mm. in the early 80s. And that was like... Um, that was some fun music. That time. was that was like, you know, that was really uh, fun as, as, you know, as a fashion statement. But musically, I wanted to go outside the box from, from, the, from the beginning. And, um, and that old jazz stuff and all of those other things, they just didn't fit into that into that um you know sort of power pop you know mm. rock and roll culture and so um when i was 15 or 16 i um uh, i was playing a show and a guy named floyd dixon came in who is a, a famous blues pianist um he was a songwriter. He wrote a bunch of drinking songs that, you know, a hey bartender, wine, wine, wine. He wrote one scotch, one bourbon, one mm -hmm. beer. He wrote, um, um, he wrote a lot of, uh, a lot of those, um, sort of songs in the forties and early fifties and, uh, was part of the central Avenue scene in Los Angeles. And he took me under his wing when I was 15 or 16. And, and we did a lot of shows where we played four handed boogies to end the show. And, and, um, and, and then, um, I was playing a, a concert and, um, BB King heard me and he, I was about 18. I'm just making a short, no. <laughs> you know, bio about it. Yeah. And, um, he asked if I wanted to go on the road. He like, he's like, you've got a great left hand. want to go out on the road. And I said, sure. And so I didn't think it was legit. I didn't think it was real, you know, and a, a few weeks later I got a call to go out and I opened and I played with him. I toured on the bus with them. You're 18. I mean, yeah. I'm just like, listening to you. You're like, oh, I was 16. And then, you know, I'm thinking, God, I'm just a kid. I was. Just I was a just kid. a kid. What an experience. I, you know, I know a lot of musicians. Um, the musicians I know who, are, who, who do it for a living, who are session guys, who are sidemen, who, um, who've done it all their lives, have very similar stories. Mm. Um, because uh, they, they kind of... They kind of knew, I knew from the time I was 12, like, if I practice, I can be good at this. Like, I understood the basic idea. I'm like, but if I practice, 
I can I can get good, mm-hmm. and um, and I can make a living doing this, even if it's even if it's just playing at a at a bar or playing at someone's party or doing whatever. I can make a living at this. So, of course, I had to learn the standards. I had you know tons of fake books. Had to play four or five hours a night in piano bars. Um, I did that as a teenager, and then I was also part of bands. Um, uh, rock bands, jazz groups, you know, all, you know, R&B stuff. Um, and, and all of it teaches you something still. Everyone I play with teaches me something. And as long as you sort of keep your ears open and, and you're willing to learn something, um, you're gonna. Yeah, I agree with that. And be an archaeologist, like you were saying. Go back, dig through your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Dig through their ancestors. Yeah. Yeah, the liner notes are really important, you know. Um I felt like um you know, with this with this album I just recorded because of um the nature of it, I felt like, you know, liner notes are gonna, are really key to this. <laughs> it's a it's an art that's been lost um for, you know, for many many years. Um um I think maybe since since the 70s with with a handful of exceptions um and of course some great reissues with excellent liner liner notes you know that that being a, a you know reissues of all genres um have have had great liner notes but as far as new artists new releases with liner notes they just don't tell you about where stuff came from the way they used to um you know it used to be really good writers respected writers that would give you a hint into where this artist came from, where their where the roots were, and you'd go, "Oh, I got to hear that," you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd see the liner notes on a Bob Dylan album, and you'd or you'd see the title of a song, and you'd you you know um, you'd want to make sure that you heard uh, Blind Willie McTell. But you know, for me, I through the excavation I found Blind Willie McTell before I found Bob Dylan interesting (laughs) you know of course I knew Bob Dylan songs but I didn't I wasn't like a Bob Dylan fan I was a fan of I was a fan of the stuff that he was a fan of I think more than sure um, more than anything and it's true too I think uh, with words I a lot of the young writers that I write with I I say you know go and read books read poetry read interviews with your favorite People, you know, find out who inspired them. But words are, for me at least, words are so important. They're, they're incredibly important. Most important words are the smallest. The the pronouns are oftentimes, um, and personal pronouns, are what separate the great writers. Mm. Um, of course, finding interesting rhymes and creative uh, rhymes is, is excellent. But oftentimes, simplicity wins over so you're you're swimming in the same pool as as a lot of other people with the rhyme that you have um especially if you want a one syllable rhyme um there's only so many in with the with whatever the word you start with is and so if you're willing to um experiment with pronouns and personal pronouns you find a way to turn it on its head to 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 make the most out of those short words, mm-hmm. and um, when I was when I was a 
uh, in ninth grade, I had um, I had a I was in the jazz band in high school, and then I and then I uh, the second class of of my day was with a guy named Francis Thumb, and Francis. First day I came in, said, "Play me something." I played something. He said, "Go in that room and practice. I don't want to. I don't want to see you in the class. I just want you to go as a side room with an upright piano. All I want is for you to go in there for the whatever fifty minutes of this class and and go practice. And then on Fridays, um, Francis had uh, you know had been part of the Harry Parch Ensemble and um, was a really interesting dude. Had studied with great classical teachers and. Um, had written a bunch with Tom Waits, mm-hmm. written a number of plays with him, music, and he could have easily made a living as a composer or playwright or any number of things, but loved teaching kids. Mm-hmm. And so on Fridays, he would take me, when he could, to the library and get me a cup of coffee. And I'm just like, you know, 14, something like that, you know? And uh, I thought it was great. It was really one-on-one. And he would just, you know, basically take 15 minutes out of the class every once in a while and go, if you want to be a great writer, you need to read Pablo Neruda. You need to read, you know, um, you know, you need to read uh, Rambeau. you got to read Voltaire. you got to read... Um, it, it would just go on and on. You have to read this Dylan Thomas thing. You have to read this E.E. E. Cummings thing. You have to read this. You have to read that. You've got to read the Ogden Nash. You've got to, you know, um, there was like no end to what you had to read to like get a different perspective from the word side of things. So while I practiced five or six hours a day, um, even more at some points on the piano, I was also reading a ton. Mm. And I was really absorbing all of that um, poetry and um, trying to assimilate it, trying to understand it. What makes it interesting? What makes it unique? What makes it great? Um, I love this teacher you're talking about. Oh, my gosh. And um, I was really fortunate. You know, I only had him for, for part of the year before I left the school, but he made a huge influence and you know we've remained friends over the years it's hmm. wonderful oh i love it <laughs> i'm so excited to get your record how many <laughs> albums have you made i was going i went on the google yeah this will looking, be 10 yeah there's you have a lot yeah this will be the the one that's coming out will be number 10 and you only made one with your full name the- uh well that it was kind of a funny thing because um my first album was called aj croce and um my initials just, I, I just, uh, you know, sort of was given them in like first or second grade. And that just became, you know, that yeah. became my name. The nickname years. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but the first question out of every uh, journalist um, all over the world was, well, you know, what does the AJ stand for? And so on my fifth album, I decided to just call it Adrian James Croce, which is my full name. And I was really surprised the number of people that thought that I had changed my name. Really? <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. So, um, no, but that's my full name. That's and more so, of a poppy kind of record, right? That's, it is. It's more it streamlined. Was, you know, I've been really l- lucky to <clears throat> sort of have been under the radar in a sense and still have had um, chart success, you know, with... with um, 
you know, about 17 or 18 songs and, and, um, uh, on the radio, you know, but mm-hmm. that one really, um, that one was the first time where, you know, I had, I had a, um, I had a song that was like really, um, you know, not triple A, not college, not blues, not jazz, not, um, it was just straight up on the pop radio. It was on, I was, you know, I was sandwiched between, um, you know, ludicrous and fabulous for like, (laughs) for like 13 weeks. And, um, and it's funny because I mean that's a song I wrote with my friend Steve Poltz, and we just oh, I love and, Steve Poltz. and we've you know oh. we've had success with a few of our songs, but we just neither of us play the ones we have success <laughs> with. That is so funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. I love it. So okay, definitive. You said August. Is there a definitive August date for the American release of Just Like Medicine? You or? know, it's been going back and forth in oh, the last week. That. So yeah. you okay. know, it's right. you know, I've heard a couple different things. I. I hate to tell you, but um, if you go to um, uh, if you go to my Facebook um, band page, I'll have I'll have info in the next couple weeks. And, yeah, and as always, and, you guys, uh, I'll put links on the website so that you can find things. And this will come out um, when I spoke with your manager. We talked about having this episode come out right before. Okay, great. Even though we're recording in yeah. February. Yeah. So, yeah. AJ, you're the bestest. I'm so excited. Just Like Medicine comes out in August. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been fun.